Philosophy for Our Times is brought to you in partnership with the New College of the Humanities, a university-level college offering undergraduate and postgraduate degrees in the heart of London. NCH pride themselves on offering unprecedented access to a world-class academic faculty. Philosophy students at the college are taught by some of the foremost scholars in the field, and one-to-one tutorials create a personalised teaching experience. Choose your major and minor for a unique combined honours degree and study the NCH Diploma to widen your appreciation of the world in ways you'd never thought of before. Go to nchlondon.ac.uk for more information. Think better. Think NCH. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers to debate today's biggest ideas. This week on Philosophy for Our Times, our speakers tackle the fundamental problem of philosophy, as argued by Heidegger. Why is there something rather than nothing? All all of our panellists are under the impression that there is something rather than nothing, so the the, the question is why, um, or indeed whether or not we should ask that question. To answer this question, we were joined by a cosmologist, metaphysician and parapsychologist to delve across their disciplinary boundaries to look for answers to the fundamental problem this poses. Have we misunderstood the very idea of nothing? Or might understanding nothing rather than something be the key to explaining the universe? To find out, we are joined by Templeton Prize-winning cosmologist George Ellis, metaphysician Amy Thomason and author of The Science Delusion, Rupert Sheldrake. As ever, please do subscribe, let us know what you think of the podcast, tell anyone you know that might be interested, and please do give us a rating as this helps other people find us. Back now to James Ladyman, who hosts this week's episode. And we'll begin with uh, each of them making a kind of position statement of their view on this question, why is there something rather than nothing? So should we start with Amy then? What I think philosophy has to contribute to a question like this, or most any question, is to try to clarify the question. What can it mean? What are we asking anyway? And so any good philosopher starts by defining her terms. So let's start here with something. And this is a term that I've written something about in my second book, Ordinary Objects. So something is a slippery term. There's at least a couple of different uses we have of it in everyday English. There's one use in which we use it as what philosophers would call a sortle term, roughly to pick out independently movable, unified lumps of stuff, bottles and bits of paper and so on, right? This is the sense in which you say, the table's wobbly. Could you please give me something to put under the leg, right? But then we also use something as what I've called a covering term, or some people talk about a a dummy sortle. And that is a sense in which, from the application of any other count noun, we're entitled to infer there's something, right? So if there's a rock in my shoe, I can say there's something in my shoe, right? If there's broccoli in the fridge, I can say there's something in the fridge. If there's a protest on Main Street, I can say there's something happening on Main Street. If I'm worrying about my future, I can say there's something on my mind. Right? It doesn't have to be a physical object here. Right? So what are we asking about when we ask, why is there something rather than nothing? Maybe we'll talk a little bit about nothing later. Well, it can't be the sortle 
sense, right? If we want to know why there are bottles and tables and rocks, then presumably physics gave the answer to us a long time ago. We could explain that in terms of particles and their ways of unifying and bonding in certain ways that makes them more tightly bonded to each other than to the surrounding stuff. That's not what we're asking about. But if we're using the term in the covering sense, then what we really have to be asking is some more explicit, specific question. But if we resolve it into some of these other sort of terms, why are there rocks or cats or cars, right? Then at that stage, I think there's no serious feeling anymore. This is an intractable, mysterious question that the sciences couldn't possibly answer. In fact, the most plausible candidate, once you start putting in, substituting in specific terms for something, would be something like, why are there particles? And my understanding is that as science has continued to develop, that physicists have gotten pretty good plausible explanations of why there are particles and how these might emerge from quantum vacuums, right? In which case, it looks like maybe we could get a scientific explanation of that too. So as just kind of a brief introduction to my angle on this, I think we need to refine the question, but once we refine it, and I've started by talking about something, then I think what we get is a series of more scientifically tractable questions rather than the apparently intractable old question that Leibniz posed and Heidegger reiterated. Thank you very much. That was very clear. Thank you. George. Okay, I've got really two things I want to say. The first is about physics and nothingness. And in physics terms, the many way many people use it, nothing is a vacuum. So you take everything out that you can and you use the highest pressure vacuum pump you can, then you've got nothing. Now, in fact, this because of quantum physics, this is not nothing. It's a very, very complex structure. And it's now a pretty well-agreed uh, feature of quantum field theory that when you try to extract energy, all the energy till nothing is left because of the uncertainty principle. Virtual particles are buzz buzzing into existence and out of existence all the time. The, the quantum vacuum is a highly dynamic structure, and there's a huge amount written about that. Um, it exists as it does because of the underlying physical laws, namely the nature of quantum physics. And so if you say to yourself, if you say, could the universe come into existence out of nothing, and your starting point is this kind of vacuum, the response to this is this is not nothing. It's a very, very complex, very highly structured. Why does it exist? Because of the nature of the laws of physics. And now then we could have a whole debate in terms of ontology. What all the laws of physics, why do the laws of physics exist? Which is a very complex structure uh, discussion because there are one view of the laws of physics that they are descriptive and another view of the laws of physics that they are prescriptive. And in neither case do we know why the laws of physics <laughs> exist or why they have the form they have. So there's a whole discussion about that from the physics side. But I want to now complicate the picture by saying that as someone who is a physicist but also thinks in more philosophical terms, what exists is not only physical. If you want to say what exists, it is a big mistake to say that only physical things exist. And so um, what is an ex we do not be intimidated by reductionists into agreeing that it's only particles and forces that exist, because that isn't true. Um, ideas exist. And so, all right, you may say this involves the brain and it's a complex thing. So instead, let me say the following example, algorithms exist. And an algorithm is a procedure which is used in computers in order to create things. For instance, most of the motor cars that you drive around today are created in 
factories because an algorithm is there directing what happens in the factory and that is the reason that the um, motor car exists. So now, what is an algorithm made of? Is it made of wood or concrete or particles of some kind? The answer is an algorithm is an abstract entity. It is realized in various ways in these computers and then through that realization it causes motor cars to come into existence because they wouldn't exist if it wasn't for the algorithm. But the algorithm itself is an abstract entity. So if you want to describe why things exist, not only do you have to think about why particles exist and forces exist, you've also got to think about why abstract entities exist. And I can give you many other examples with my concrete immediate example is algorithms which undoubtedly exist. They undoubtedly have causal power in the real world as it exists today. Good, thank you. <laughs> well, when I was thinking about this discussion, I read Lawrence Krauss's book, um, Something from Nothing, because that's the most popular visual version of this debate from the cosmological point of view at the moment. And what struck me about it, and what struck me about most arguments, is how conservative they are. If you look at traditional discussions of why there's something rather than nothing, the traditional ones are theological discussions, they start from the assumption that there's a source of all things which is threefold. In Kashmiri Shaivism, it's called Parashiva, the unified source of all things, with Shiva, which represents the principle of form or order, and Shakti, which represents the principle of energy or power. In the Christian version of the Holy Trinity, you have God, the ground of all being. You have the Logos, which is the mind of God, the form, the source of all forms. And you have the Spirit, which is the source of energy, movement, and power. Well, in Lawrence Krauss, uh, you have a source uh, which he doesn't discuss, but it has two manifestations. One, the laws of nature, which may be uh, the field of all possible laws of nature that may apply to all universes, but that's taken for granted as pre-existing. And then you have the quantum vacuum, which is the source of all potential uh, energy and power for this and all other universes. In other words, it's exactly like Shakti, and his role of the laws of nature is exactly like Shiva, or, or the Logos and the spirit. So this seemingly radical atheistic view is extraordinarily conservative in philosophical and theological terms. It just rephrases them, and with a few kind of polemical jabs against sort of old-fashioned theologians, uh, he's basically restated the ancient case for the existence of God. Um, <laughs> he goes even further. He says in, in, that the... Uh, it's the nature of the quantum vacuum is so unstable that it almost inevitably would give rise to a universe through a kind of fluctuation. So, okay, let's look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. The earth was without form, the world was without form and void, and the Spirit of God moved on the face of the deep, or the face of the waters. Well, the quantum vacuum's pretty well a modern version of the face of the deep. And if the spirit of God, the wind, moves on the face of the deep, it creates waves. And the waves presumably follow a law-like structure. So what struck me about all this uh, was that the debate is essentially a theological debate that's been reframed in these modern physical terms. And the really interesting question for me about it is that in the theological debate, the ground of all this is conscious. Whereas for Lawrence Krauss, a materialist and atheist, the ground of all this is unconscious. Now, it's a matter of faith either way, I suppose. 
But as far as I can see, the advantage of the ultimate ground of being being conscious has, first of all, you don't, you're, it, there's a basis for these rational laws instead of the laws of nature being free-floating mathematical abstractions that are outside space and time, that apply to all possible universes, that are ultimately metaphysical in the ultimate sense of metaphysics as being beyond physics. These, you've got free-floating laws which have no ontological basis whatever. And then you have human minds that appear mysteriously in an unconscious universe and can actually understand these laws Although we've evolved by evolutionary psychology of sort of using stone tools and primitive uh, campfire-type techniques, our minds are somehow able to comprehend uh, the entire universe so that there can be someone like Krauss putting forward theories about the ultimate nature of reality. Well, if there's a conscious basis for both reality and for human minds, the traditional view, this makes a lot more sense. Take that away and we're left with a kind of unconscious version of traditional theology and a lack of explanation for the existence of minds of any kind, including those of physicists, um, which in philosophy of mind is called the hard problem. It's curious because there are lots of debates which were had in a theological setting and are now had not in a theological setting. But that doesn't mean we should think that what we're debating is the theological debate. I mean, it just means that there's a, a debate that we were able to articulate in theological terms, we've got a way of articulating it that it isn't theological. There's this debate about whether um, nothing is sort of something in virtue of being nothing, or whether it's just the absence of something. And that also echoes a theological debate about evil. Evil, on the one hand, could be just the absence of God. On the other hand, evil could be a kind of active principle, something substantial. Um, so similarly in debates about nothing, we get you know, nothing being really important and nothing just being, no, it's just not something. Do you want to comment on the nature of nothing? Sure, yeah. So I've been thinking about that too. I mean, so think back to what I was saying about something and now think about nothing. So how do we use the term nothing? Right, and again, in our ordinary business of life, where, where our terms get their meaning, right, we'll use it as a way of suggesting that there's no things of a particular kind. Right, the magician says nothing up my sleeve, and pointing out to him that there's air or skin is not a contradiction of what he's saying. You might go home and open the fridge and say there's nothing in the fridge, even if there's some dead bugs in the corner. Right, I mean, there's nothing that you would want to eat or prepare for dinner in the fridge. So. What, when we, you might think that you could use nothing to mean the negation of any sort of, but that won't do for this debate, right? Here's a couple of really bad answers to the question, why is there something rather than nothing? Oh, well, if there were nothing, then it would be the absence of anything, but that's something, right? Or no, because if there were nothing, then there'd be the fact that there is nothing, and that's something. Right? Those clearly aren't satisfying answers. So that shows that you can't just mean by nothingness the negation of absolutely any sort of or count noun, right? So what did we have in mind originally when we asked this question? You know, when somebody like Leibniz asked this question or when we tend to worry about it? Well, I think there's a pretty plausible case to be made that what we had in mind is something more like not why are there abstract entities or facts or absences, but rather why are there concrete entities, the sort of concrete causal things we interact with, right, or that make them up. And if that's the case, then again, I think we have a plausible case to be made for thinking that the root of the question is something like, why are there particles or why is there matter? In which case, again, I think we have hopes of getting an answer 
from physics, although I totally agree with what George said, that any time you give an answer like that, any kind of at least standard form of deductive hypothetical explanation, as the philosopher Carl Hempel called them, right, involves you explain why something by appealing to initial conditions and a law of nature. But any kind of explanation we give like this, if that's the form of explanation you're looking for, if you're looking for something like a causal explanation, and I think the question, why is there something rather than nothing, is put forward as if we're looking for something like a causal explanation, akin to why did my tomato plant die, then you're always going to have the, to presuppose initial conditions and laws. Then you can always turn the question back and say, why that initial condition and why those laws? And our why questions can keep on going, but the hope is that each of them will remain having the feeling, at least, of tractability and approachability in the way that this totally generic form of the question doesn't. From the physics viewpoint, if there is really nothing, then there's no space, there's no space-time, there's no laws of physics, there actually is really nothing. And that is not what the physicists have in mind. So, but because if the laws of physics don't exist, if space-time doesn't exist, you don't have physics. So, so simply the existence of physics implies that something exists. And th this is a problem for physics because if we now come to try to explain the origin of the universe out of nothing, we have the problem that before the universe exists, the laws of physics didn't exist, and so we don't have any hand to get on it. In fact, it's much worse than that, because if I say before the laws of physics existed, I'm using a phraseology which assumed that times existed before the universe existed, and that doesn't even make sense. So the phrase before the universe existed doesn't even make sense as a phrase. Okay, But, but nevertheless, if you then, relating to Rupert's stuff, there are ultimately four fundamental reasons why something should exist rather than nothing. And the first is um, it was inevitable that it would exist, and somehow there is some pre-existing condition which made it absolutely inevitable. Now, the, the, the physicists try to create an inevitability structure through string theory as a unified theory of all forces, and that fun miserably failed and created a structure where there isn't one theory, there's 100,000 million theories, and the idea to prove only one physics, only one universe could exist failed. The second is the high probability one to show that what exists is highly probable. Now the problem with that is that then rests in some underlying assumptions about what is probable and to show that the universe is what it is because it's highly probable, you have to have a definition of what is probable and mechanisms to create probability and that ends you up in another kind of a mess. The third explanation, if you call it that, is that there is no explanation, the universe just is and there is nothing further to say, and that is a fundamentally, logically watertight explanation. Nobody likes <laughs> it <laughs> because it doesn't explain anything. It doesn't give you any unification. And the final one is what we were hearing from Rupert, is that the universe exists because in some sense it was meant to be there. There's some purpose in some sense. There is some reason for its existence that takes you out of physics into metaphysics. And that is, again, a perfectly logical, logical explanation. If you want to explore that because of the reasons I've said before, existence is not only physics, you've got to look at things beyond physics and the data that you should take into account isn't only physical data, you should also take into account data from ethics, art, philosophy, psychology, all of those subjects as well as data from physics, if you want to explore that as a real philosopher. Yes, well I quite agree with that and <laughs> I think that the... Uh, <laughs>
I think that the, the, the data that we have to take into account include the, data, the very fact of consciousness, as yeah. I mentioned earlier. Yeah. I mean, all of these things, uh, algorithms, designs, art, etc., products of consciousness, um, of human consciousness, and there are probably many other kinds in the universe. So then, really, the question is, uh, I suppose the ultimate question is, does consciousness come first, and, or does physical reality come first, or do they both come into being together? And, of course, we can't ever know the answer, because we couldn't be there at the moment of the Big Bang or before it to see the answer. So it's speculative, and it's a matter of belief either way. What we have at the moment is a dominant philosophy within the natural sciences of philosophical materialism, which is the assumption matter comes first, and consciousness emerges from matter in an as-yet-unexplained way when brains get big enough, a kind of light bulb of consciousness goes on. But the consciousness isn't actually anything. It's nothing. It's either an epiphenomenon or it's an illusion. That's the materialist philosophy of mind. So consciousness itself is problematic. It ought not to exist. We ought not to be conscious. It's an embarrassment for materialism that we are. If we take a different view, if we take consciousness as primary, then we get to a view held by almost all religious traditions that there's a consciousness comes first and gives rise to a universe. And this is not just religious, it's philosophical. For Plato, uh, you have a realm of ideas or forms that comes first. The Platonic, he calls that reality. And then there's a kind of emanation, or, or for Neoplatonism, and a kind of emanation from that realm to give the physical universe. So that's another way of thinking about it. Now, if it were just a matter of arguing philosophically, that would be the end of the matter. We wouldn't be able to get anywhere. But the reason that religions uh, exist is because people have had mystical experiences over the ages where people, through consciousness itself, have felt that their consciousness is linked to some vastly greater consciousness than their own, which they identify as the ultimate consciousness of the universe or God or whatever name they choose to put to it. And now, one could say, well, it doesn't count as science, but science, as Lawrence Krauss emphasizes, is based on empirical facts, and consciousness is the ultimate empirical fact. Empirical means based on experience, and consciousness is experience. So the exploration of these ultimate realities, I think, involves mystical experience as well as scientific measurements of the cosmic microwave background radiation and such like. You, you paint a picture of a kind of what you call the dominant philosophy of materialism that makes it absurd. I mean, the idea of emergence is quite straightforward, right? Rocks aren't alive, but when things get complicated, you get life. Right? So bacteria are alive, spiders are alive. Now, when things get really complicated, yeah, you end up with human beings that are conscious. But before that, you've got all sorts of levels of perception and sentience and experience and so on. And that's part of the world. But uh, it didn't arise until there was evolution of life. And now, How do you, you, know? You, know, you You present your view as a kind of common sense view, but your, your view really amounts to the fact that if every last human being stopped to exist, you know, kind of tables and chairs would stop existing as well because matter comes after consciousness. But there's really no, no reason to believe that. I mean, you, you, you're not required to believe that to recognise that consciousness exists. I'm not necessarily saying consciousness has to come first. And, but I am, I am saying consciousness may not be confined to brains. The cerebrocentric view of consciousness seems to me a very limited one. Many people have considered that stars are conscious, the sun may be conscious. Panpsychism is a fashion in the philosophical world at the moment. Um, 
where, which attributes some level of mind to many kinds of being. So I think it's a huge area of debate. <laughs> <laughs> so I wanted to sort of break in here on a couple of points. One is I want to emphasize that in order to think there's something wrong with the traditional question, one doesn't have to be, narrowly speaking, a materialist. I'm not someone who thinks that only physical material things exist. I think abstract entities exist. I have spent a lot of my philosophical career arguing for and showing how to make sense of the existence of abstract entities like theories and novels and, and so on. Um, we can ask why any of those exist also, and then there's a variety of answers to be given. The questions about why the laws of physics exist or how to even understand what laws are, Rich, interesting philosophical question. Why does consciousness exist? Another great question, and I've written some on consciousness as well. I'm with James on this one. I mean, I think we have at least the beginnings of an understanding that consciousness emerges from certain complex forms of life, which emerge from um, more basic material entities. You can look at other, certainly one can look at other arguments. I teach Berkeley every year, right, who thought that all of matter, well, not that the idea of matter doesn't even make sense, and that tables and chairs and the things we see are really just ideas in the mind of God and then implanted in our finite minds. Now, there's other arguments out there one has to look at, but to me, the argument that goes bottom up explaining consciousness via matter rather than matter via consciousness, the cases I've seen of both of these, I'm taking the uh, consciousness via matter route as having much more promise of giving us something deserving the title of explanation. So I don't want to deny consciousness. I don't want to deny abstract entities. What I do want to do is to sort of clarify and simplify the question. And in each of these cases, it's fine to ask questions about how consciousness comes into existence or why we should say there are abstract entities. But all of these, I think, are much more clear and tractable than the question simply why is there something rather than nothing. Thank you. George, you want to come in on this? Yeah, uh, brief, briefly, in the debate between you two, I'm on your side mm. rather than Rupert's mm. on this issue, except for one thing. I think you said that tables and chairs didn't require consciousness to exist. Yes, they oh, no, I didn't say that, but I said that... Uh, no, he did. Oh, oh, sorry. He did. They, they were designed. They wouldn't exist unless they'd been built by human beings. Yeah, but they'll stay existing if there wasn't any consciousness around. So in that sense, they don't require consciousness to exist. They require consciousness to exist because they've been designed by the human mind. But they can carry on existing when there's no consciousness. Ah, that I agree. But I, I just well, I agree too. I mean, I'm, I, <laughs> I, I, I just want to briefly say, in terms of existence and what exists, to me, the deep underlying nature of the cosmos is possibility spaces. Now, there, I could spend a lot of time talking about that. But certain things are possible, certain things are not. You can look at the laws of physics in terms of possibility spaces. They allow certain possibilities. They don't allow other possibilities. And if you want to explain what exists, one of the things you have to do if you want to go deep is explain why these possibility spaces exist. And then... The further level of this is some of these possibility spaces relate to thoughts and the existence of consciousness, which then takes you to a very deep level. So in my view, the deep level of understanding what exists is looking at the possibility spaces, not just of physics, of chemistry and biology, but of mental processes. So, Rupert, well, objection to your view might be that it's satisfying to have an explanation, but it's then once you've got it, what do you do then? You say, oh, I'm happy now. I know why the universe exists. There's God. I know why everything <laughs> happens. God wants it to happen. I know where there's consciousness because God's conscious. Um, so no need to scientifically investigate 
things? Um, not no at more all. questioning? Absolutely not. I mean, this no? is a caricature of, 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 a, of a belief in God. I mean, I'm used to that. I happen to believe in God, but I'm used to having my view caricatured. So I don't think it means no more question. I spend my entire life in scientific research and doing research, looking into things. One of the things I'm looking into at the moment is, you know, just what kinds of minds might there be? Would it make sense to say the sun is conscious? If through another question, if through spiritual experiences, for example, exploring the realm of consciousness through psychedelics, an endeavor which is going on today on an unprecedented scale, there are people exploring with, I mean, there's now, we know more about traditional psychedelics than ever before, we know about synthetic ones, there's now a new wave of psychedelic research going on, showing realms of the mind as realms of possibility, which George was talking about. The, the, the possibility space, the ultimate nature of minds is a possibility space. Now, exploring consciousness itself is not saying, oh, we've got the answer, forget about it, that's the end of it. Um, but taking consciousness is a very important area of inquiry, which consciousness studies are engaged in at the moment, including uh, taking seriously uh, psychedelic experiences, mystical experiences, near-death experiences, and a whole range of other experiences, tells us something about the nature of minds that we didn't know before. I think that the, the idea that this is just putting a stop to inquiry and, uh, is quite wrong. I think okay. that it opens up the whole field of inquiry in a more, much more interesting way than it is opened at the moment. I mean, I think you, you responded very well to my, my criticism, but let me just point out that loads of the things that you advocate could be engaged in by someone who is a materialist. Oh, I agree. I'm I not mean, claiming that yeah, it's... Yeah, good. I mean, I'm so, just saying it's so an open question. There's a bit of a false dichotomy between... No, no. I mean, Krauss is a popularizer who made a lot of money saying that he knows where something comes from, nothing. But I mean, he's not really very serious intellectually or scientifically project that he's It has got, a huge influence. He yeah, goes on a roadshow... with a huge influence that are completely intellectually shallow. But what I think is that... It, is that that we need an open mind about these questions about something rather than nothing or the nature of consciousness rather than presupposing a materialist what explanation. What is the issue with psychedelic drugs? Well, I think the point about psychedelics is that some people have on them a kind of mystical experiences where they feel they're in contact with a greater consciousness than their own. Some people have mystical experiences completely spontaneously without taking any drugs at all. And so, for me, it's an open question. Is this really contacting a vastly greater consciousness than our own, which is the simplest explanation? Or is it some kind of illusion produced by you know, serotonin levels in the brain, which would be a materialist explanation? Or is it both? I mean, it could involve changes in serotonin levels. It does involve changes in neurotransmitter levels. I mean, the only thing one could add is that there's a middle ground, which is you think, well, I've, I am getting an important insight from this kind of experience, which is that I'm not very important. And my sense of self is a kind of, you know, kind of fallible construct that can easily dissipate. Yes. And then I'm, what am I left? I'm left concluding the world is much bigger than me and I don't have that very big important status as an existing thing. Well, that's true. Which Carl Sagan said. But that doesn't say anything about that's true because I'm in commune with some super mind world spirit or something. It's just true that I'm not very important. I'd like to sincerely thank our speakers and uh, thank you all very much for contributing to it and thank you to our speakers. This episode of Philosophy for Our Times was brought to you by the Institute of Art and Ideas. It was presented by me, Anna Carey. 
And our guests this week were Rupert Sheldrake, George Ellis and Amy Thomason. As ever, please do subscribe, give us a rating, tell anyone you know that might be interested in the podcast and of course tune in next week for more debates and interviews from the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply.